Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular story podcast. I am very, very excited to be back. Dear Midnight Myth listeners, it has been a bit. It's been too long, actually. Yeah, it's been a minute. We haven't done a Midnight Myth for about a month. I do apologize. I launched a company last month. We have a baby. He is now almost nine months old. So we've been really busy. Yeah, this past month, uh, baby got sick and then mom got sick. So we were all dealing with the virus that was just ripping through our house that was fortunately not COVID. But that is just kind of the reality when you have a baby. You're just going to get sick all the time. That was this month. Wow, that feels like a year ago. But you're right. That wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Well, we are back with another Midnight Myth episode. Thank you so much for your patience. We really love every single Midnight Myth listener. It feels good to be in the studio doing this. It does, yeah. But luckily for the fellow travelers on the path of the beam, there have been a few Wheela Ka episodes, so that's been great. Luckily, when the baby got the cold that then went to you, Laurel, I got spared, so you got more Wheela Ka's. Yeah, (laughs) So what do you want to talk about? Oh, that's just a joke. We know exactly what we want to talk about. This is a movie that is very, very, very important to me. It has a huge imprint on my life. It is my all-time favorite movie. I love this movie so much. I have seen it so many times that when re-watching it with Laurel, I had to stop myself from quoting it because I was annoying her. 
because nobody likes the person that just quotes the movie the whole time. And that was me. So I had to slow down. I had to stop doing that. We are talking strength and honor. We are talking that what we do in life echoes through eternity. We are talking the Ridley Scott directed Oscar winning smash hit starring Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix, Richard Harris. We are going to ancient Rome. This is a all Rome podcast. We are talking about gladiator. Oh my God. Derek is so excited in here and you'll be happy to hear that this was actually my idea. I leaned over to Derek while we were having lunch and I was like, next time we podcast, should we do gladiator? And if you are a faithful longtime listener, you know that we covered a little bit of gladiator on a very early episode. Uh, and, and then I think we probably touched on it or at least Marcus Aurelius a little bit on an episode we did with a brief overview of stoicism but we have never done a full, like, deep dive into the movie from start to finish. And uh, we have someone in the house who is pretty well-read on the Roman Empire and Roman history. So it felt like a great opportunity. Over the last few months, we've been kind of revisiting some movies that we just dipped our toes into, like The Matrix, things like that, and then bringing uh, the full Midnight Myth treatment to it. We have been doing this podcast for more than four years now, and we, I think, have grown a lot. So it's been really cool to go back and revisit some of that stuff and put out some higher quality content for you. Yeah, and I'm really happy with the times that we've touched on Gladiator in the past, but it's my all-time favorite movie. And we host a podcast where we discuss predominantly film and TV, sometimes literature and theater. And we talk about the historical, mythological, and philosophical context of it and we haven't done my all-time favorite movie yet. Seems like a big miss. Yeah. I'll just say personal anecdote before we begin here. I dropped out of school and I moved to the city of Philadelphia. And when I moved here, I did it because I wanted to start a band that never formalized. And that's where my Philadelphia life really began. When I saw Gladiator, I went back to school to study. It wasn't right after that, but it... That planted the seed of me wanting to go back to school and to learn more about ancient history and get a degree in history. Gladiator is such an important movie to me that it changed my life and it's part of the reason that I am so obsessed with history. Now, when I went back to school, I didn't anticipate falling fully in love with ancient Rome. I really knew I wanted to study ancient history and I wanted to learn about Rome but then once I got to the Roman history classes, everything clicked. And that has become and still is the intellectual passion of my life is understanding Roman history, its significance, reading the sources that I have read and reread and continue to reread. And now we get to do an entire ancient Rome podcast. Yeah, it's amazing. That's an incredible story because it just goes to show the power of Movies and TV and pop culture and these things that some people think are just entertainment, are you not entertained, are just fun, are just meant to like give you some way to while away the hours. But in fact, you know, you can see a movie like this in the year 2000 and then completely change the course of your life, discover a new passion and then end up making this podcast. And, you know, I can speak for myself, like you and I would not have had the connection that we had had we not 
uh, first really started to talk to each other about history and mythology. I think that that brought us together. So again, this movie gave you your intellectual passion, but also it helped us find each other. So, I, I couldn't agree more. Anyway. Before we roll up our sleeves and really get to work here, Laurel, do your thing. Oh, it's been a minute since I did my thing. So we would love to hear from you. Uh, we are on social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We are on Facebook. We're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And we're also on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. All of those places are great ways to reach out to us, say hi, tell us what you like, uh, give us an idea for a future episode you want to see us do. Uh, anything we love, love, love to chat with you. You can also, if you love the podcast and you want to support us, you can head over to our Patreon or our merch store. There are links to those on midnightmyth.com. Uh, and if you don't have money to spare, uh, but you just want to support us anyway, the best thing you can do is leave us a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. So if you like what you hear, drop us five stars, a couple of words about why you like it. It really helps us find new audiences, and it also just feels really great to know that you're listening and that you enjoy it. And fellow travelers on the path of the beam, Wheel of Ka is doing great. We're about another 100, 150 pages in the stand from where we last left off at our last episode. The response to that episode has been amazing, so thank you, everybody. We will let you know when we're ready to do the next Wheel of Ka on the stand. We're probably not going to read the rest of the stand. There probably will be a middle episode in there somewhere. And folks, if you're listening to the Wheel of Ka, then you know the latest episode on the stand featured a discussion of a character who is in the movie Gladiator, Emperor Marcus Aurelius and the great philosopher king that he was, the Stoic philosopher. So super exciting that these were able to overlap. Well, that's because Ka is a wheel. Ka is a wheel. On with the show, should we do the briefest of brief recaps? Take it away, Derek. The movie Gladiator opens with Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, with his second-in-command and loyal general Maximus on the German frontier, waging a final battle against the Germans and finally defeating and conquering them. Meanwhile, Marcus Aurelius's son, Commodus, and his daughter Lucilla are on their way to the front with senators, expecting that Marcus Aurelius will announce that Commodus will be the next emperor. Lo and behold, Commodus does not get named the emperor, as Marcus Aurelius thinks that Maximus should be the savior of Rome, because Maximus, not a politician, could end the corruption and restore the original Roman Republic. Commodus then murders his father and then tries to kill Maximus, though he escapes, and has Maximus's wife and child in Spain die. Maximus, wounded and down on his luck, ends up being captured and sold to a man named Proximo, who trains him as a gladiator in the North African provinces. Maximus originally refuses to fight However, on the day of the games, he comes out like uh, Maximus comes out and ends up decisively winning the gladiatorial match and is known as the gladiator Spaniard. Now that Commodus has returned to Rome and is now the full emperor of Rome, he decides to honor his father with 100 days of games and open up the Roman Colosseum, which Marcus Aurelius had shut down during his reign. This leads Proximo back to Rome and where Maximus and his gladiators win a decisive victory in front of the emperor. The emperor sees that Maximus is alive and wants to have him cut down by his guard in the sands of the Colosseum. However, the crowd chanting live makes Commodus grant the thumbs up to keep Maximus alive. 
Maximus and Commodus then, through the gladiatorial match, engage in not only bloody gladiatorial combat, but they also engage in a propaganda war where Maximus's undermining of Commodus leads other senators, such as Senators Gracchus and Falco, to start plotting against Commodus. They want to free Maximus, have him return to his army, come to Rome, kill Commodus, and restore the Roman Republic. However, Commodus' spies and schemes are aware of this, and he ends up stopping the plan before it happens. He wounds Maximus in the uh, belly or underbelly of the Colosseum, I should say, and then says Maximus and Commodus should fight to the death, with Maximus being wounded already. Commodus is assured that he will kill him. However, Maximus ends up killing Commodus, and as he dies, Commodus' sister Lucilla says, go to them, symbolizing that Maximus is finally going to return to his family in the afterlife, and he dies being carried off in honor while Commodus's body lies there in ruin and disgrace. Have you seen this movie a couple of times, Derek? Just a few. <laughs> yeah, excellent recap. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you so very much. So the movie came out in 2000. It is now over 20 years old. I think it's time for us to really ask, does this movie hold up? I think it does. I absolutely do. And this movie, I remember being a huge deal when it came out. This was a massive, massive deal. It was a big critical and commercial success, obviously Oscar winning. Uh, and there was a whole bunch that was groundbreaking about it. There was a lot of integration of CGI into uh, the recreation of ancient Rome. And that at the time was really mind blowing. It looked really, really good. That's one thing that today we were just talking about this. It looks a little too glossy. And if it was made today, it would look a little grittier, a little bit more textured, a little bit more realistic. And that's just one thing that is a tiny nitpick. But overall, I think this is a really great, epic, epic adventure, really beautifully shot movie. The performances are good. I have a problem with one of the performances, but I think I am in the minority on that. I don't really care for Joaquin Phoenix in this. Uh, but again, I think everyone, everyone in the world disagrees with me. Uh, but overall, I, I do think it's a really wonderful, epic film. And the late 90s and 2000s were kind of an explosion and a renaissance of this kind of golden age, epic, ancient uh, storytelling. There were movies like Troy and Braveheart in the 90s and then Gladiator as this like huge example of recreating ancient Rome and the stories of antiquity, but also being a, a mostly original story on Ridley Scott's part. So is this, you know, at all a historically accurate portrayal of what it was like to be an ancient Roman, a gladiator? Is this a story about a real person? No, uh, but it is a really wonderful story. It is a really beautiful movie, and I think it still looks and feels really, really good today. Yeah, it's a historical epic. You mentioned Braveheart. I want to throw out, you mentioned Troy. I want to throw out another one, Ben-Hur. Yes. It's, well, it's yeah. Ben-Hur-like in its epic yeah, size that's, and scope. that's the kind of movie that it was recreating from the golden age of cinema, like Cleopatra, that kind of thing. Um, and, and there was this sort of re, a renaissance of that kind of movie making, exactly. And yes, there is little to nothing historically accurate about the movie Gladiator, which will be a huge focus of this podcast. Who were these characters that they are either based upon or supposed to be? So we will be talking about that later in our analysis piece, you know, but the idea of 
being able to, through the power of film, recreate a part of human history and to do so where it comes alive and speaks to modern contemporary audiences is a marvelous feat. And because of that, historical fiction has a huge and majorly important role to play in keeping us contemporary, alive humans today engaged in the past. I've already talked about my story about wanting to learn more about ancient history because of this movie, and I'm sure I'm not alone. And historical fiction has a unique role in our historical discourse to shape, form, and also guide us into history. There are times where it's not done correctly, and what do I mean by that? There are times when the historical fiction is designed to distort and to propagandize the past. I can think of one great historical epic that does that, that falls victim of propagandizing the past, bastardize the history for the sake of its own narrative, and can spread historical falsehoods that be gone with the wind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Excellent example. Fantastic movie, but... At, at, Built on a fallacy that is, to its core, really problematic. But the 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 evaluating it as a work of historical fiction, deeply problematic. Uh, the Patriot, another yeah. one by Mel Gibson, deeply problematic, has these really baked in terrible historical premises and myths about history that it's propagating. Gladiator, though wildly historically inaccurate, is deeply in love with Rome and deeply committed to making Rome accessible to us modern um, audiences. And because of that, it sustains it could simply have been an action movie that culminated with Maximus and Marcus Aurelius winning the battle against the Germans. The temptation to tell that story, how did this Spaniard become so powerful in the Roman army? How did he get to know Marcus Aurelius and Commodus and all of these other majorly influential, important people? That narrative would have been cool, but no, it starts there. And it's about the journey of Maximus trying to go home. One of the things when you watch the making of Gladiator, which I have seen, was the script got reworked several times because they were afraid of it becoming a revenge movie. And they very much did not want to make this about Commodus getting his comeuppance by the hands of Maximus. They wanted to make this about Maximus getting home. And I think they really succeeded. And there's a level of empathy that the character Maximus has. There's a level of grace that we give to him that allows us to go on this bloody journey and really root for this character. I love that. I think, thank you for bringing uh, that into the the conversation. I didn't know that detail about the script being reworked, but yeah, it is really easy for this to fall into a standard revenge story, but instead it is working uh, very hard to align itself with honor, with grace, with inner nobility and to have Maximus reach for that within himself when he is at his absolute worst, when he has lost everything. I think that's fantastic. The other thing I just wanted to comment on is that I think the movie is very aware of the need to critically engage with the past. Obviously it knows it's not telling a straightforward historical narrative, but it does at times have characters commenting on either what they perceive as an ancient antique past when we feel like we're watching the ancient antique past, but also comment on how they believe that their actions will 
be remembered in history, particularly Marcus Aurelius. And I'll just paraphrase from an early scene where he says, how will people speak my name in years to come? Will they call me the philosopher, the warrior, the tyrant? And I think that is an interesting reflection because, of course, none of us know when we're alive how we will be remembered. But then, of course, we know how Marcus Aurelius is remembered as the philosopher, as Plato's philosopher king, as this kind of diamond in the rough, this uh, thing that is so so to be aspired to and was so hard to find in the actual world. But then we also know that the philosopher king that he was, the Stoic philosophy he cultivated, was largely abandoned by his succession. So there's a bittersweet uh, aspect to the character bringing that up, thinking, how will people remember me? Well, yeah, we'll, we'll have golden memories of you, Marcus Aurelius, but we'll also remember that your philosophy was tainted by the line of kings to come. Yeah, I think that's really, really well said. Um, Marcus Aurelius was into Stoic philosophy. Stoic philosophy was very prominent in Rome at this time, something that we have fleshed out and discussed before. Steve and I discussed it in the last Wheel of Ka. And the idea of Stoic philosophy is that you aspire to duty and virtue so that you have certain core duty that you, you believe you owe to others and that you have to aspire to virtues. It, it, you know, and we see a discourse about that in this movie, when Commodus says, you know, Father, you wrote to me about these virtues and they're wisdom, temperance, fortitude, justice, and I'm forgetting the, the other one. I should have written it down. And Commodus is like, I'm not a stoic. None of those are on your list. Here are my virtues. And in that, we see the antagonism between father and son and the transition from the stoic Roman emperor to then the megalomaniac tyrant that is Commodus. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah, that idea of restraint and taking misfortune in stride is so core to Stoic philosophy, and we colloquially think about it as like, you're Stoic, so you're emotionless, but rather the complex version of that philosophy has more to do with accepting that there will be suffering in your life and reaching for your inner virtue and duty to pull you through those things. So Marcus Aurelius is an incredible example of this. And then, of course, Maximus lives those virtues through this story. Oh, yeah, 100%. He is very much a Stoic. He's both a Stoic hero in the colloquial. So the way we usually use Stoic in a narrative, which is still a correct way, is to say the character doesn't display their emotions outwardly. Right. You know, they control their emotions, they display them outwardly, or they may have no emotions. A lot of times people say, oh, it's a very stoic character saying that they are emotionless. What Maximus shows us is that, no, you feel an insane amount of emotion. Right. Maximus knows to the day the amount of time he's been away from home. Maximus knows the exact amount of soldiers he has, the exact amount that are killed in action, the exact amount that are wounded and the approximate number that'll probably die from subsequent injury or infection. This isn't someone who doesn't feel emotion. This is someone who cares deeply for others. The very first words we hear from Maximus is when um, Quintus, one of his other lower generals says, how do the troops look? What's the first thing he says? The first line of this Oscar winning performance, lean and hungry. 
His first words are that his troops look lean and hungry. He's commenting on how tough war is on his soldiers and how much he wants to get to a quick end so that everybody can go home. That's a really good point. Yeah, his his response is not, they look ready for battle. His response is, I see that they need something and I want to get their needs met. This is not a man who doesn't feel. Yeah. This is a man who deeply feels, who deeply empathizes. And that's why everybody follows him. That's what makes him such a successful leader is that he actually cares about other people. And because he cares about other people, because stoic stoicism is about controlling your emotions, but it isn't about denying that they exist. So he can control his emotions. He still leads soldiers that he doesn't want to die to their deaths because his duty is to be a general and he aspires to be a virtuous general. So he empathizes with his men, even though it will mean that they die. And just another great line that Maximus says in the very beginning, when Quintus says, you know, people should know when they're conquered. Standard sort of imperial snobbery. We've already won the war. Give up and surrender. And what does Maximus say? Would you, Quintus? Would I? And does Maximus know when he's defeated? Enslaved, enchained in dungeons, he's still fighting. He is still doing his duty to his family, and he is still trying to wrestle some virtue out of the lowest existence. And this is something that us contemporary watchers can really learn from because life is really hard right now. We are all truly in weird, dark places. The world is full of comatuses running around like infants with mad and drunk with power and making decisions that hurt and harm people but we can all still be a little bit like Maximus, a little bit like the Stoics. Oh, amazing. So the movie holds up? The movie holds up. Awesome, awesome. I Can you tell that I love this movie? I'm a little fired up right now. Yeah, so we've already checked philosophy off our list. Uh, to jump into a little bit of analysis, I would love to start with some mythology. How would you feel about that? I have a lot to say about not only mythology, but also theology in this movie. But go ahead, take the Fantastic. lead. Fantastic. One of the things that I wanted to bring some conversation and attention to is the fact that Maximus is clearly uh, motivated by a desire to go home, a desire to reunite with his family. The tragic and unjust killing of his wife and son is horrible to watch and horrible to see how it affects him after being kept away from them for so long to do his civic duty. But what motivates him to keep going, to keep fighting, aside from mustering that inner virtue, is the idea that there is an afterlife where he will be reunited with his wife and his son. And that even stops him from having an all-out affair with Lucilla. It's like, I won't even enjoy the flesh in this life to the full extent that it's being offered to me because my wife is still waiting for me in the afterlife. So I definitely want to talk a little bit about Roman beliefs about the afterlife and how they're portrayed within this movie. So to go back to uh, ancient Rome and mythology, like a lot of things in Roman mythology, Roman afterlife beliefs are modeled heavily on the Greek example. So the underworld, like in the Greek, is the realm of Hades or the Roman Pluto, uh, dead souls will travel with Hermes or Mercury to find their eternal home there in the underworld. And after paying the ferryman to cross the river Styx, souls are judged and then sent to one of a few places. 
So if you were a terrible sinner, you were sent to Tartarus, which we would probably liken to the Christian hell. It's an abyss of torture where you might be stretched out on a rack uh, or you might get a very specific torture like Sisyphus or Tantalus that is tailored specifically to your crime. If you were a mediocre person, you didn't sin too much, but you also didn't do too much good for the world, then you went to the medium place, or as it's actually called, the Asphodel Meadows. And if your soul was really pure, then you were granted entry into the Elysian Fields or Elysium. And this is what Maximus references when he's giving a rousing speech to his troops before the battle. He's saying, if you find yourself, I'm paraphrasing here, wandering through a field with the sun on your face, fear not, you are in Elysium and you're already dead. Now, in a much earlier tradition, Elysium is reserved only for mortals who are related to the gods, but this evolves to allow the heroic and virtuous as judged in Hades to be allowed into the Elysian fields. Once you're there, the sun always shines, everyone is content, everyone is at peace, and it's a place of pastoral bliss. And some texts will actually give Elysium a locus. Uh, both Homer and Hesiod place it on the very western edge of the world, which I kind of love because if you're a fan of like Lord of the Rings, then where does everybody go at the end of the story? They go to the west. So very much alluding to this idea that paradise, that Elysium, that the afterlife is on the western shore or on the western horizon. And I wanted to read a quote from the Aeneid to describe, uh, from Virgil, to describe the um, Elysian fields for you. So Virgil says, quote, In no fixed place the happy souls reside. In groves we live and lie on mossy beds by crystal streams that murmur through the meads. But pass yon easy hill and thence descend, the path conducts you to your journey's end. This said, he led them up the mountain's brow and shows them all the shining fields below. They wind the hill and through the blissful meadows go, end quote. I just really like that description of it. I think it really gets to it. And it's also pulling some of the imagery that we see in the movie Gladiator with Maximus's hand across the, you know, the meadows of wheat and seeing the sun on his face and all of that is kind of perfect. I love it. Yeah. So that's kind of the antique, that's the classical tradition around Elysium. And it really gets uh, taken onto, it gets taken hold of by later literature as well. Can I ask, you yeah. call it Elysium. Uh, is it not Elysium? Elysium. I mean, that's just how I'm pronouncing it. Okay. I uh, just wanted to make sure. I also don't speak ancient Greek, so I don't know how they... <laughs> nor, nor ancient Latin. That's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry <exactly>. to interrupt. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so later literature will kind of uh, take hold of this and develop it into a less pagan and much more Christian-feeling uh, paradise, or they will create this kind of Arcadian bliss around it that is relatively secular. So you'll see it referenced in... Uh, like Marlowe and Shakespeare during the Renaissance and even a lot of later literature as well. And it'll start to feel a little bit more like what we consider uh, to be the Christian heaven today, which I think is interesting that they take the name and, you know, apply these kind of Christian things to it, this paradise and this idea that uh, you go there to rest, you go there to feast, you go there to be merry and to be happy, rather than it just being this beautiful, natural place where you carry on. And 
I wanted to think about that in the context of Gladiator because the very specific thing that we get in the portrayal of Elysium in Gladiator is that it's Maximus's home. So yes, it is a meadow. Yes, it is a place where there is nature, but it's also Maximus's home and his wife and child are waiting for him there. And that's something that other characters talk about as well, that they will meet up with their loved ones when they're there. And one thing that I couldn't find in reading about it was any mention of reunion with your loved ones once you reach Elysium. So that feels to me a lot more like a a Christianization of Elysium. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I do. So the way that we see in particular the character Maximus interact with ancient religious symbols, artifacts, the way that Elysium is evoked, etc., um, is very heavily Christianized in the respect that they strip a lot of pagan out of it. So I will I'll elaborate a little bit about what I mean specifically. In the ancient world, just about every ancient culture, including the Romans, had specific funeral rites that must be to the letter done in order for the body to then turn into a soul to then go into the afterlife properly. In ancient Egypt, it was about mummification. Ancient Rome, it was usually about specific cremations and other sacrifices to other deities that you have to make. In in Gladiator, there's a few interesting things that are very non-pagan in the way Maximus uses religion. One, he has a little altar in his sort of tent there, where he has a statue of his wife and daughter and like one or two deities in which he makes nightly prayers to. So he prays to them. In the ancient pagan world, you could certainly make a prayer to a god, but they needed sacrifices to actually intervene. So if you don't actually sacrifice when you evoke a god, why would they be bothered to come in and intervene on your behalf? So the fact that he just sits at night by himself and prays is much more the way Christians or followers of the Abrahamic monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. That's much more like how those religions work, not how ancient paganism works. There was ancestor worship. More on that in a little bit when we discuss what gladiators actually were. So there was ancestor worship, but you wouldn't worship living people. So you wouldn't have altars of your wife and child and you know, praying that these other statues would then intercede on their behalf. Secondly, when his wife and son are dead, in order to make sure they can get to the afterlife, he would have had to have done the specific funeral rites, which would have evolved sacrifices, which would have evolved money paid to two local priests to enact those sacrifices. So it seems to play that the wife and child, by being innocent, will get to the afterlife by simple, by virtue of their death. Maximus is going to get there by virtue of his death. The way that prayers are talked about are not done in the material way, which is I go to a God, I give you a sacrifice, the God does something for me. That's how ancient pagan prayers are supposed to work. It's much more like I have a little covenant with my own deity that I can talk to and hope that it intercedes on my behalf, but there's no guarantee, which is much more the way that Christians do. And lastly, when he prays, he calls whoever he's praying to the heavenly father. That's just a Christianization. Right, yeah. You know, ancient pagans weren't going around going heavenly father. That didn't happen until Christianity. 
emerged. You would say Zeus, Jupiter, and even more specifically, you'd be like Jupiter Optimus Maximus. Yeah. You would evoke the specific incarnation of the deity at the temple that you are at. You would say Zeus Anan, who is the temple that Alexander the Great made sacrifices to in Egypt, um, saying that he was trying to link himself to Zeus Anan, that he was not the son of Philip of Macedon, but Zeus Anan, and hence divinely ordained to conquer Persia. So like you would go and you would sacrifice to a deity, a specific deity, and it's usually not just Zeus or Hera or Thoth or whatever deity or Odin. You would have the specific incarnation of that deity that lives in that temple. Now, all of this is to say you know, it sounds like Derek is tearing his favorite movie apart. Well, one, I think the switches that they do to Christianize the religion does, I think, in a world, and I won't even say Christianized, I think Abrahamic text dies. So it's much more like the Abrahamic face more broadly, not necessarily specifically Christian. I think that is done, in my opinion, because I know Ridley Scott had historians weigh in on his decisions. So I know he did his research and he had experts on set. I think it's done to make Maximus a character that Christian, Jewish, and Islamic modern people can follow by mimicking the way we would pray now. And Because I think if Maximus just went into a temple and cut the throat of a goat... Yeah, no, a modern audience <laughs> is not going to get on his side after watching that. And said, you know, Pan, please make sure you're watching over my wife... Or, Pan and whatever Romanized version, like Pan Invictus Goldus Maximus Balbabas, please watch over my son and daughter, and he cut the throat of a goat. I think modern audiences would be like, that guy just murdered a goat. Yeah, I'm out. <laughs> you know, like, I'm out, yeah. That's not cool, but that's that's how it would have done. So I think the way they do it makes it a little easier for contemporary audiences to root for Maximus, if that makes sense. I think that does. Thank you for that context, and I appreciate that analysis there of it, like, yeah, actually making this decision to just sort of add this kind of vague patina of an Abrahamic style religion on top of it just makes it easier for all of us to digest. I don't think that we all need a like lecture on how sacrifices worked in ancient pagan Rome before we get on board with a movie. I'd rather be able to just get on board. And it's a fiction. It's not actually an yeah. ancient, ancient yeah. Rome. It's, you know, so... And they do so much good in making Rome and the Roman world feel alive. You can forgive all the, at least I can. This amateur Romanist can forgive all the inaccuracies because they're freaking everywhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's not a work of history. It's a work of fiction. Yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about gladiators. Yeah, let's do it. Can I talk? Can I give some historical context? Can oh my I, God, please. Can I just kind of rip and roll here? Go nuts. So gladiators were a real thing in ancient Rome and the way they're portrayed in the movie is pretty inaccurate. And, but let's give a little context. So Rome, this little city on seven Hills eventually absorbed the entire Italian peninsula. And that was the start of its um, spread to empire. Long before the reign of the Caesars, Rome controlled vast amounts of territory all over the ancient Mediterranean, ancient Near East, and ancient um, Western European territories. And it did for a long time constantly expand, though I will say expand, but expand slowly. 
one of the things that Rome was good at, side tangent here, was it didn't bite off more than it can chew. Many empires and many would-be warriors wanting to form empires would conquer vast amounts of territory, die, and their empires would disintegrate. Think of Alex of Macedon, a.k.a. Alex the Great, and his empire disappeared when he died. Rome was very methodical and slow, and the places that it went to, it would usually materially benefit from. They, the people they would conquer would materially benefit. So a lot of times people were like, Romans are here, but I hear they've got clean water. I hear they have doctors. I hear they have roads. roads. I hear they have this cool thing called wine. I hear that like you can be part of the Roman Empire and you can get food year round. And protection. And nobody's going to mess with you no matter what. So a lot of places would be like, yeah, that's cool. We'll, we'll be Romans. Yeah. And if they said no, they died. And so that makes it easy. But Romans were good at building and putting down roots and, and growing very, very slowly. It's why their empire lasted for as long as it did. There was another ancient Italian peninsula civilization called the Etruscans. The Etruscans were ancestor worshipers. So they didn't have a pantheon of deities like Jupiter and Odin and Osiris and all of those. They worshipped their ancestors. And the way that they honored their ancestors was through human sacrifice. So if I beat you in a battle or a war or a conflict, I would take your people, usually one of them, and I would kill them for my father and my father's father and so on and so forth. The Etruscans eventually get conquered and then absorbed and Romanized. The one thing the Romans had culturally, they loved things older than them. They really admired when you had a tradition that predated them. It's one of the reasons they absorbed so much of ancient Greece, because Greece was a prominent and proud culture long before the Romans were. The Etruscans, one of the things that they absorbed was this form of blood sacrifice, human sacrifice for your ancestors. And the way that Rome absorbed it was through gladiatorial combat. So my father dies. I am rich and I am wealthy. I may even have political or military ambitions. So what do I do? I throw games in the honor of my father, just as we see Commodus does for Marcus Aurelius. The gladiators who fight and die in the arena, the blood they spill is a blood sacrifice to honor the dead relatives. Now, we've already talked about how Rome materially benefited the areas it conquered. It also did something else that was very unique for the ancient world. You may have heard the phrase bread and circuses uh, pertaining to the Roman Empire. They would bring entertainment to their subjects. One of those forms of entertainment was gladiatorial combat. As gladiatorial combat grew and became a staple of Roman culture throughout the empire, it became much more gamified, and even though its traditions were religious, you can't really say by the time of Marcus Aurelius and the Roman Colosseum that this is truly a religious um, blood sacrifice. It's really about a form of mass entertainment, um, done to please the masses and can be looked at in part as a propaganda tool, the way that Comatus uses it. Certainly it was, but it's also really important when you have people that you rule, that you have a life that you can enjoy. 
And sport and watching sport is part of that. To date, we still do this here as and Americans. And sometimes it can be a little propagandized. But at the end of the day, we love watching our football, baseball, basketball, soccer, etc. So where I'm going is that the gladiatorial combat was a staple of Roman relaxation. It was a staple of Roman expansion. It was a sign that Rome had really come to an area when it opens up its gladiatorial combat. And yes, the, gladiator, the gladiators were in fact slaves. But there are a few things that this movie gets totally incorrect. One, it's estimated about 90% of all gladiators lived through combat. The, so it wasn't always to the death. So you would have two people or groups of people. You would fight. It would be very bloody. There would be scoring and a referee. And when one warrior was down and another warrior stood over them, the person who threw the games in the movie Gladiator, it's the emperor. It could also be a rich Roman noble. They would give thumbs up or thumbs down. If the losing gladiator acquitted themselves with honor, more often than not, there'd be a thumbs up. Training and maintaining gladiators was incredibly expensive. A good gladiator is hard to come by. You don't want them all dying. Now, there are absolutely deaths in the arena. Any sport that has a 10% mortality rate is really brutal and bloody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that doesn't exist anywhere in the modern world. Um, so I'm not trying to make gladiatorial combat seem less brutal than it was. It should and is and thought to be a brutal exercise without a doubt. I mean, it comes from human sacrifice. So that's its origin. So it's not a progressive form of entertainment by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but most gladiators volunteered to go to gladiator school. So the way we see Maximus being picked up when he's down and out, forced against his will and pushed into becoming a gladiator is not truly historically accurate. Um, there is the very famous gladiatorial revolt of Spartacus, where he gets a bunch of gladiators and they decide to revolt. But largely speaking, the gladiators were, especially the good ones, were incredibly well respected in society. They got lots of ladies. Most of them won their freedom and became very, very wealthy in themselves. They're like the soccer players, football players, and uh, baseball players of today. They are like the superstar. If you can go in and say, yeah, I've been a gladiator for 10 years and I've never lost a fight, you're going to be free. You're going to be wealthy. You're going to have lots of ladies um, much in the way that the superstars of sports are today. So yes, it's brutal. Yes, it's horrible, but it's very different in history than we see in the movie. I really appreciate that. Thank you for clarifying that. I do think that the choices that the movie makes make sense to me on the fact that obviously it infuses it with these really life or death stakes, but also it goes really far to illustrate the character of Commodus as a, a person who took gladiatorial games too far, who would have said, yeah, maybe if somebody committed themselves with strength and honor, I should spare them, but I'm Commodus, I'm the emperor, and these people are trying to make me look bad, so thumbs down. He just very much seems like the kind of character who would take that precedent and say, the hell with it, this is my game, and I want to see some blood. And so let's, that, that's a really good segue. So let's talk a little bit about the character Commodus versus the man Commodus to what we know. Excellent. Commodus was the last emperor in the Nervan Trajan dynasty. 
This is at the end of what's called the reign of the five good emperors. And this was the emperors were Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antonius Pius, Marcus Aurelius. So the empire had had unprecedented peace, security, expansion, and the transition from one emperor to another without bloodshed that happened peacefully, and all five emperors were successful in their endeavors. This shouldn't say that there was peace throughout the empire. This is a brutal ancient world. There was definitely fighting, and there were definitely wars going on, but by and large, it was an unprecedented era of peace and prosperity. The great Enlightenment historian Edward Gibbon, who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, also in this not-so-humble podcaster's opinion, the greatest work of history ever written, did my senior thesis on it in college. He called that this era was the greatest era of human history. You were better off being a human under the five good emperors than any other time. That was his statement. Which is a lot to say, given how far, you know, modern medicine and plumbing and uh, antiseptics have come since then. But Well, he was writing in the um, 18th century, right, so yeah. he was comparing his time and the previous times to that and said, yep, you're better off then than you are now. Very bold claim. Um, and Comatus is the last of those of that dynasty. He is the only person who inherits the throne from his father. Everyone else adopted a son and they raised them as a surrogate son and trained them in how to become an emperor. So every single one of these men did not have any natural born sons and they picked someone based upon merit, status, etc., and groomed them for the throne. Edward Gibbon also suggests not so, um, so, not so subtly that the reason Commodus is bad is because it went from father to son, that that was inherently a corrupting way to hand power down. Um, and he was certainly taking jabs at modern European monarchies when doing so. Yeah. And so Commodus becomes the emperor at the death of Marcus Aurelius around about 180 AD, as the movie suggests. And Commodus was obsessed with gladiators. He was certainly megalomaniacal. Thank you. He was certainly a tyrant. He was certainly immature. He would dress up like Hercules, head into the gladiatorial arena with a club, which was Hercules' weapon, and he would beat gladiators to the death when they were disarmed. If the gladiator show was not going so well, he would just take random people and have them thrown into the arena and have the gladiators just cut them down if he didn't think that the show was going well or he didn't like the way the crowd was responding. He was a completely irresponsible, selfish, and terrible emperor, and he eventually gets assassinated due to this. He doesn't die in the arena like we see in the movie. And at his death, the Roman Republic was sadly not restored, in fact, one of the things that I like about the movie, but is wildly historically inaccurate, nobody had any pretense that Rome would ever be a republic again. That sentiment had died out of the fall of Brutus and Cassius and the reign of Julius Caesar. And then there was the brief period where, um, I'm sorry, with the fall of Brutus and Cassius and the reign of Augustus Caesar. By the time Augustus becomes the first true emperor, that's it, folks. No, anybody who was a Republican in ancient Rome was either dead or keeping their mouth shut. It was now an empire ruled by an emperor, and that would never change. And nobody was thinking, maybe we should restore the Republic. Not Certainly not Marcus Aurelius at all. 
This being stated, the Republican forms were still supposed to be respected. In pretense, it was still a republic. In the eyes of how the emperor becomes named, he gets voted by the Senate to have the offices and titles that the emperor has. In reality, it's much more of a military dictatorship. That being stated, these five good emperors were not trying to restore the Roman Republic whatsoever. So Commodus coming, coming into power and then his assassination triggers what's called the crisis of the third century, a period of Rome's decay, a time in which the military and all of the would-be generals are claiming themselves emperors, civil wars, the army in, is tearing apart the countryside, the territories start to contract, which then leads to Diocletian and eventually Constantine and the reconstitution of the Roman Empire and the emergence of Christianity as a political and, and religious force. So Commodus enter, ends a golden age of Rome, entering in a period of imperial strife and catastrophe, which then ushers in the new Christian era, which helps bring about the end of the Roman Empire and the beginning of the medieval era. Amazing. You know, as you were talking about that, and I was thinking about Commodus, the character, but also the uh, the image of Commodus that we've been handed down in history, he is someone that you can see echoed in so much literature and pop culture as well. I just kept seeing Joffrey Baratheon over and over again. And from my understanding, one of the assassination attempts on Commodus was a poisoning, but he vomited up that poison and would not die by poison. So I was seeing Joffrey in the Purple Wedding again. Uh, but that's a kind of archetype, the weakling, the weak king, the insecure a uh, man who is so desperate to hold on to power that he will put on such pageantry to show how powerful it is, but it's really a manifestation of weakness and insecurity. It's just a really interesting archetype, and it's very clearly wrought within the movie, but I love having that historical context to know that, you know, maybe maybe he wasn't Joaquin Phoenix, but he he absolutely did conduct himself with behaviors that suggest this kind of weak insecurity and desperation to hold power. Oh, absolutely. Now, by far the most famous bad emperor is Nero. Yeah, 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 yeah. For a whole host of reasons, Nero is thought of when we think of evil, terrible Roman emperors. He burned Christians at the stake. He apparently sung songs while Rome was burning. And while Nero looms large in our collective imagination of terrible Roman emperors, and certainly he deserves that reputation, he ended the Judeo-Claudian dynasty, the first imperial dynasty of Rome. After Nero's death, there was a short civil war, but largely speaking, the empire trucked on. The next dynasty was the Flavian dynasty, who Vespasian started the construction on a little building known as the Colosseum, completed under the reign of his son, Emperor Titus. So... Back to the gladiatorial combat. Yeah, yeah. Here we are. It's worth noting that the Empire trucked on relatively successfully, despite how terrible of an Emperor Nero was. Commodus ended the Golden Age of Rome. He ushered in an era of catastrophe and near-imperial collapse that fundamentally changed the relation of the Empire and reoriented the Empire and started the end of that century started the transition out of antiquity and into the medieval era. Arguably because of that, you'd have to rate Commodus as one of, if not the worst of the bad emperors of Rome. And there were several bad ones, 
but I don't think any other one can claim nearly destroying the whole empire due to their malfeasance and terrible rule. It's worth noting that an empire's rise and fall is bigger than one bad ruler, and so we could give Commodus a little bit of a break and argue that perhaps this was inevitable anyway. Rome needed to go through this crisis uh, because the cracks in the foundation were there. A military autocracy can't last for that long, you could argue. And certainly I think there's merits in those arguments. Historians care very much about structure and how change happens. And we don't say it's just one person's fault. But surely if we add up the wins and losses and the causes and consequences, Commodus, to me, though not as dramatized in story, not as remembered as Nero, Commodus to me is certainly worse. Yeah, and you also have to keep in mind the what he came in after. I think a huge part of why Commodus's reputation is such, and I think you making the point about him having the effect on the crisis of the third century is super important to remember, but knowing that he was what came right after Marcus Aurelius, who is held up as one of the greatest Roman emperors and one of the most noble, the philosopher, that stark contrast is really important to remember. Absolutely. When you were the last of a dynasty and the ones before you are called the five good emperors. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Now, another thing I'd like to point out about the history of Rome and Commodus, if you will. Yeah. Upon Commodus's death, the Senate passed a law called the Damio Memori. They had done this after Nero. They had done this after Domitian. Probably a few other emperors I can't remember. That roughly translates to memory damnation. They attempted to burn Commodus from history. They tore down all of his statues. All writings of him had to be confiscated and burned. The idea is he was so bad, they wanted to erase him from ever having happened. This, however, did not work. We are here talking about a dramatic interpretation of one of Rome's worst emperors. And this brings to the broader point that I'd like to connect about historical discourse, historical fiction, and something that we see prop up a lot in contemporary American politics. History cannot be erased. Even when you actively try to erase history, it still cannot be erased. It will live on. Our relationship to history will change. Uh, the way we interpret history will change. Our heroes will sometimes become villains. Our villains will sometimes become heroes. It's worth noting, in the crisis of the third century, one somewhat stable imperial dynasty emerged called the Severin dynasty. And we would, might know the name Severus because Severus Snape from Harry yeah. Potter is named after him. So Septimius Severus starts the Severin dynasty. We've Wow, that's a tongue twister. Yeah. <laughs> We've seen his triumphal arch. It stands in the Roman forum to date. He was not a very good emperor and certainly added to the crisis, but he and his sons had a fairly stable rule amidst all of this chaos. And what does he do? He deifies Commodus because he realizes that he needs to connect himself to this lineage of great emperors and all emperors need to be worshipped as gods. You can't have anyone damned. Hence, Commodus gets to live on and the memory damnation stops Historians start writing about him. Statues of him are preserved, etc. People are re reimagining and reinterpreting Commodus, not as the tyrant that he was, but as a continuation of a destined imperial kingship that Severus 
himself, Septimius Severus, not Severus Snape, wanted to attach himself to. So when people are going around saying to you, history is going to be erased, you can't erase our history. They're, they're, they're historically disingenuous. Even if their fears might come, maybe they do really fear some part of history would disappear. History cannot be erased. Even in a society that has a legal mechanism to erase history, it cannot be erased. Who else did I mention that had the Damium Amori, Nero, and Domitian? Yet here I am saying their names. They were not erased from history. So fear not the removal of a statue, the change of an interpretation of a historical text is not the erasure of history. It is just the living, reimagining and reengaging with the past on different terms, which is what historical discourse is all about. Yeah, it's about, like we said in the beginning, critical engagement with history. By putting up a statue of someone, you are not necessarily uh, preserving their historical memory. You are doing an act that monumentalizes. You are doing an act that celebrates a person. Tearing down that statue doesn't take away their legacy, doesn't take away the impact that they had on history, and doesn't take away our ability to have critical engagement or critical discussion of it. It just says, we're not going to deify them anymore, like Commodus. Jeez. <laughs> yes, and if you lived under Commodus, you probably don't want to walk around seeing his statue everywhere. Yeah. Because he put it everywhere. Very common. Every Roman emperor would have statues of themselves all over the empire. They put themselves on coins, etc. But yeah, Commodus had statues of himself all over. And you're like, man, that guy threw my auntie into the arena and she got chopped apart. I don't want to walk under his statue of every day. Of course not. Definitely not. But he still is here and we are still engaging with him. And I am so grateful that Ridley Scott picked Marcus Aurelius and Commodus as the two emperors that we get to see in dialogue with in Gladiator. And he didn't pick Nero or Caesar because this reimagines these characters to us today. This lets us go, who was Marcus Aurelius? When I saw the movie, I'd heard the name. I knew that he was famous. I knew that he was a good emperor, but I didn't know who Commodus was. I didn't know who Lucius Verus was, Commodus's nephew. I didn't know Commodus ruined, near ruined the empire and brought about a crisis that lasted 100 years. All of these things are possible when we re-engage with history, and historical fiction is a very important piece of bringing history to us modern contemporary um, viewers so that we can then hopefully pick up a book and be inspired and learn. You know, we talked about this in our Braveheart episode too. Braveheart, wildly historically inaccurate, but man, it's a great movie. Yeah. And a whole generation of people know who William Wallace is because of it that wouldn't have otherwise. Amazing. Let us talk. I want to do one more historical bit here because I don't want to talk the whole time. So we talked a little bit about Marcus Aurelius and Commodus. Those were real people. And we contrasted the characters to the historical record. I want to talk about the character Maximus. He is our hero, and he is not a real Roman as far as we know. In fact, it'd be kind of weird having someone named Maximus, because that would just be naming them best. You know, like... Hello, this is my son, best boy. He's you know, the best boy. But, I mean, it works really well because it's yeah, Maximus. It absolutely. sounds great, you know? So it is a little bit of a silly name. And sure, Rome had great generals. And Maximus, though, not based on... not Maximus is not a real general of Marcus Aurelius. I do think there is a Roman 
figure he is based off of. I don't know if this is literally how it is, but there is a Roman general in the early Republican period named Cincinnatus. Cincinnatus became a, the dictator of Rome. Now, we think of the term dictator as a bad thing. That sounds like, oh man, he's a dictator. Dictator is an elected office. The Senate appoints you as a dictator at a time of crisis where they remove the Republican uh, checks and balances and put one person in charge to navigate the crisis. And then after the crisis, the idea is the dictator should give the power back up. So like an emergency king. Correct. Yeah. Enemies are at the gates. We don't have time for votes. We need someone to uh, rule the, the Romans quickly and decisively. So you appoint a dictator. Cincinnatus was a dictator. He successfully navigated out of a war and helped save the early Roman Republic. It's worth noting that this is a really long time ago and there's not a lot of good sources. There is a chance that Cincinnatus legacy is um, somewhat mythologized, maybe somewhat um, expanded upon who knows really what he was, but the legacy is what mattered. So after he was the dictator, there were calls for him to become Rex in Latin. That would mean King. They are called for him to stay as the dictator, become the king of Rome. And what does he do? He restores the Roman Republic and he returns to his farm where he farms the rest of his life and lives as just a simple farmer. This legacy of Cincinnatus is something that every Roman general until Caesar followed. You were allowed your moment of triumph you are allowed to have people chant your names. In fact, our tradition of parades that we have today comes from the Roman triumph where a general would march through Rome with it, um, his captors and et cetera and all the fanfare. It's called the Roman triumph. They'd have their triumph. And then afterwards, the Republic would march on and they would relinquish their power. This lasted for a long time and Caesar changed all of that. Why do I mention Cincinnatus? Well, there are some similarities between him and Maximus. One, he doesn't actually want power. He is doing this out of a sense of stoic duty to the emperor and to the empire. He believes that Rome is the light. He says, I have seen much of the world. It's brutal and dark. Rome is the light. This is why I fight. This is why I fight for Rome, because Rome is the light. When he is offered the chance to become the emperor, he says he doesn't want it. He wants to say no. And then when he does want to kill Commodus, what does he do upon his death? He reinstitutes the Roman Republic. He wants the Republic to live on. Even when he is plotting with, the Gracca, with Gracchus and um, Commodus' sister, his plan is to kill Commodus and leave, and leave the army behind and do what? Go back to farming. So he is very much echoing this um, archetype of this noble Stoic warrior who does it for duty that does not have any desire for personal glory or power. There is another, a major American figure who modeled himself after Cincinnatus. That is George Washington. What does he do after he defeats the British? He returns to his farm in Mount Vernon. He doesn't actually personally seek to become the president but he is asked to be the president. He serves twice as president. There are calls for him to become a king and become the first king of America. And what does he do? He gives up his power and returns to his farm. 
If you're ever wondering, why is there a city in America called Cincinnati? That is because Washington formed something called the Order of the Cincinnati, the Order of Cincinnatus. And this was an order that he had of other people um, comparable to him in terms of military rank and accomplishment. However, this came under criticism because membership of the order would pass from father to son, and people accused the Order of Cincinnati as a new type of American nobility. And when Washington heard this criticism, he realized, my goodness, they're right, so he disbanded the order. But we still have a city named Cincinnati, named after Cincinnatus, in honor of George Washington. This legacy of what we think of a good military leader should be is still based off of Washington, which is thus based off of Cincinnatus. So this legacy still lives on that military service should be done for the good of people, not for individual glory, and that you don't do it for the sake of power. You do it out of a sense of duty and service that was formed under the rule of Cincinnatus, the dictatorship of Cincinnatus, and echoes through to George Washington and then to the character Maximus. The exact opposite of the Commodus energy of the weakling who is desperate to hold on to power. It is the stoic, virtuous king who is in it for the right reasons, who is in it for a sense of civic virtue and duty, pledges service to a country or to an empire or to a city, to a people, and then is ready to pass that on when it's time to retire after you have done your service. Time to go back home and rest and reap the rewards of my service. Thank you for that. That is awesome. And I think it also gets to another one of the big purposes of historical fiction or one of the big benefits of historical fiction that we have. So nobody watching Gladiator is like, this is exactly what happened in the Roman Empire, and I am now an expert on ancient Rome, but you can watch Gladiator and take something away and say, I am an American in the year 2000, and I think I understand why this applies to my life today. We're watching it right now in 2021. You're talking about the peaceful transfer of power, the precedent that was set up by George Washington relinquishing power when those were calling for him to become a king. The reason America is still a somewhat functioning Republican democracy is because of George Washington, who lived in the example and the legacy of Cincinnatus. And earlier this year, there was a vicious threat to the peaceful transfer of power. There are things that echo throughout history, throughout philosophy, throughout mythology, and into our popular culture that people making these stories can't anticipate. The people making history can't anticipate the consequences that their actions will have. But watching it today in 2021, thinking about the reverberations through time and how historical fiction makes us recalibrate contemporary uh, contemporary things that are happening to us it is a really wonderful thing to reflect on. And you have to take the good with the bad because George Washington modeling himself after Cincinnati and returning to his farm in Mount Vernon as living in the shadow and legacy of Cincinnati has helped sustain our Republic. It's also part and parcel of going back to a farm that is run by slaves. Yeah. yeah. And Cincinnati certainly was successful Roman aristocratic general. We don't know, but we can assume who was doing the farming on his farm. It was his slaves. The Roman empire was a slave economy. People could own other people and 
as much as the legacy of Rome is magnificent and great, and Cincinnatus did something extraordinary, and it inspired George Washington to do something ex- extraordinary, I have to think, and I do not know this, but that's probably part of the reason why George Washington's like, yeah, it's okay for great men to have slaves. Cincinnatus did. Right. The Roman Empire had slaves. It's been with us that long. We can still be free. It's just only for us. And the workers, were, it's okay that we own them. There has to be a legacy, a reason, a moral system that allows both the good and bad of a society to function. And if we praise George Washington for being like Cincinnatus, we also have to criticize George Washington for being like Cincinnatus in the respect that he owned slaves and he built a government that had slavery baked in, a legacy that we're still trying and mostly unsuccessfully to write and trying to correct and trying to change. So if we love him for being Cincinnatus-like, we must, if we're being historically genuine and we want to critically engage with the legacy of Cincinnatus, we must also mention that that has to be part of why slavery exists. And trust me, folks, America wanted to be the new Roman Republic, and the Roman Republic was a slave economy. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure that that is part of the reason these men are comfortable saying, we're building a free republic that owns slaves. Why? Because the Roman Republic was a free republic that owned slaves. And we have to reconcile with those things if we're being honest and genuine. And I think that's just worth mentioning here. Absolutely. Um, This has been an awesome discussion. And there were, you know, I knew that you were going to take the mic and just like totally blow us out of the water with your knowledge of Roman history and the empire. But I am really grateful for all your insights and all of the kind of questions that you allowed me to kind of work out and process in real time. It's just been really cool to not only get those deeper uh, looks into what really happened in history, but to, again, critically engage with them and say, all right, how are they still affecting us and why are they opened up in new ways in Gladiator? And I think one of the key takeaways from this conversation and from most conversations that we have on The Midnight Myth is like, don't just sit back and let your uh, entertainment wash over you. Sometimes it's fine to just sit and laugh and watch something trashy, but make sure when you are watching something, when you are learning something, when you are reading something, that you're ready to ask those questions and you're ready to ask why it affects you the way that it does and what it means to your life today. Yeah, and both on the technical level, why does this inspire wonder? What are they doing to create these images that move me? And then also on the intellectual and spiritual level, why do I connect to this? It's a question that I've always asked because I gravitate towards characters like Maximus, you know, like yeah, like Marcus Aurelius, like yeah. Marcus Aurelius. I like these noble Stoic people that put others ahead of themselves because that's what I want to be in life. I want to be more like a Maximus, but I want to be more like a Cincinnatus. But you also have to take the good with the bad, and you can't just say. Oh man, Washington was amazing. Maximus was amazing. He was a great, Marcus Aurelius was amazing. Marcus Aurelius had someone that walked behind him, whispered in his ear, remember thou art mortal, because he was being worshiped as a god and he was uncomfortable with that. He saw the political benefits of it, but he knew he was just a man. That person whispering in his ear was a slave. 
And until next time, be kind. Be kind.